part two of eight. Hold on to that. Because we're This is part, oh, part three, that's right. Part three of eight. Um, so buckle up, because we're going to go on a Revelations ride. Uh, we have with us, uh, again, this week, and we'll have for the rest of the month on Wednesdays, uh, Dr. Jeff Brickle. Um, and I, I read through Dr. Brickle's sort of resume and background, and he's got degrees from Harvard and Concordia and all these great places. He's a smart dude. He really is. And uh, he's also fun. And, and some of you know him from the classroom. Some of you have know him as a colleague. And uh, I, I first met Jeff in a very interesting place in Turkey, of all places. It's funny how you go, you know, you people right here, and then you meet them on the other side of the world. Or maybe technically in the airport, but uh, we were actually in Turkey. And I, I have a really fun picture I want to share with you there. Nick, you got my picture? Oh, yeah. I'm going there. That's me and Dr. Brickle, all right? <laughs> you didn't know I was the queen of Sheba, right? You know me, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was in, I believe, Myra. Is that the ancient city of Myra? I believe it was in Turkey, yeah. And, and I took this uh, camel ride, and Dr. Brickle kind of walked me around the square there. And it's higher than you think, even though I'm tall. It was, it was quite a scare when that camel raises those back legs first and you're kind of heaving this way. But anyway, uh, it was a great trip, and it was an honor to meet him, and I'm uh, honored that he's here tonight. Why don't you guys put your hands together and welcome Dr. Brickle. Right. Let me take it one more time. During, uh, before the end of the first session, Dr. Brickle will take questions again. So maybe you had some questions that were generated in your mind from last time. Uh, maybe you guys actually read, started reading the book of Revelations, you actually have questions now. Um, so we'll open the floor up for questions again. Who's playing around with me? Oh, okay, I need to get up here. Uh, after, after the um, service uh, this evening, uh, Dr. Brickle's family is here with him. It's Kathy and his two girls are here. And uh, you guys are welcome to come on up and greet them and meet them. And you can also ask Dr. Brickle more questions uh, after, the, after the service. So I just want to make you aware of that. All right, I'm done. Greetings. Is my microphone working? I'm a man of many talents. I operate a camel for the Queen of Sheba. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to round two. It is my pleasure to be back, getting some deja vu, being back here uh, at this grand, marvelous church. I want to express once again my appreciation to the Lugos for their hospitality. We uh, saw the uh, Naval Academy, uh, toured the Naval Academy today. That was a lot of fun and very informative. Also want to uh, give a shout out to my good friend Stephen Beardsley, who actually found time in his busy schedule to uh, make an appearance this evening. 
share. <laughs> I better mind my P's and Q's. Also, good to have Brother Arash here this evening. Uh, he wanted uh, me to let you know that he'll handle any tough questions that you have. Whether Trump, Netanyahu, uh, Gorbachev, Putin, Stalin, or Hitler is the Antichrist. Uh, he is an expert in, uh, he wanted you to know this, that he's an expert in New Ark, Delaware being in the book of Revelation. He can find it. It's, it's secretly encrypted. It's in code. And he has uh, the ability to read that. And he's also going to fix any mistakes that I make this evening. Amen. So we're glad that Arash Ahmadpour is among our special guests. So last week, just to recap very quickly, we did an overview of some of the interpretive issues what uh, someone afterwards referred to as the syllabus. We uh, laid some groundwork on, uh, and, and did a sort of an orientation on some important issues. And I talked about the need to do some radical rehab, right? Let's, let's take the structure and, and tear it out to the, to the uh, studs. And uh, we're heading in a different direction to some degree than a lot of uh, uh, what I might call modern prophecy teaching, and we're heading in a completely different direction in my philosophy with the book of Revelation is we must go back before we go forward. In other words, we have to try to understand what Revelation meant to its original audience, the 12 churches, uh, or the uh, seven churches, rather, of Asia Minor, before sort of running with it in 2019 and trying to correlate it with current events. I think it's better to start uh, with what the book meant. So we're going, this evening, we're going to take a look at chapters one through three. Uh, I don't anticipate we'll actually get through all of this material uh, tonight, but we're at least going to launch off into our study. So chapters one through three. Some of our goals this evening to unpack and, and uh, somehow help make the biblical text come alive to our, to our hearing, to make the text come alive. Number two, to see and hear what John sees and hears, all right? To be drawn into the experience as John is trying to relate the otherworldly things and beings that he sees we are trying to see through his eyes through the description he provides in this narrative work. We're also trying uh, to recognize that the text invites, even demands, surrender and obedience, not necessarily full comprehension. This harkens back to a concept I talked about last week. One of the most important traits for studying the book of Revelation is the ability to say, to, to uh, acquiesce and say, I don't know. I don't have every answer, even though Arash does, I don't have every answer. <laughs> right? To try to have some humility and be willing to put some issues on hold because we don't fully comprehend, and that is okay. Some additional goals. To marinate ourselves in the text to 
to let the text of the book of Revelation seep into our pores to adopt an apocalyptic mindset. Does anyone know who that is? It's Raj. Yeah, it does actually resemble him. Some key questions that we want to think about as we approach this section of the book of Revelation. If Revelation is an apocalypse, why did John package it as a letter? Why didn't he simply send an apocalyptic message full of visions? Why does he present it as a letter, or we might even say a series of letters, to seven churches? We also might want to ask, if Revelation is a letter, why did John present his message as an apocalypse? Or worded differently, why didn't the Spirit prompt John to simply write an apocalypse? Or why didn't the Spirit prompt John to simply write a Pauline-style letter? We have many letters in the New Testament Paul writing to churches, admonishing them, instructing them, teaching them, warning them, uh, uh, imparting theology to them. Why didn't, why didn't the Spirit prompt John to simply write a letter in a, in a Pauline manner? So these are some of the questions. And these questions, I think, reveal the heart of the book. Why is this book strange? Why is it full of bizarre, weird imagery? Why does an angel have to take John on a journey and show him uh, otherworldly things? Maybe it can teach us about pa uh, patient endurance and faithfulness. And maybe the book itself serves as a shock effect to wake up the church. The book of Revelation is, is, uh, is dynamic the book of Revelation is powerful, and it was a way to, to, to shock these churches into the reality of where they were sitting in time. So to shock them, to wake them up. So we're going to do a flyover of chapters 1 through 3 to start, start this evening. I'm going to fly over and get the lay of the land in these first three chapters. First of all, it begins with a prologue. And for you uh, academic geeks out there, the Latin name is proemium, the introduction, verses 1 through 3, followed by an epistolary uh, prescriptio, or we might call it a prescription, that begins and addresses the people to whom John was writing. Then it's followed by a doxology, a section of praise followed by dual prophetic oracles. Then the prophet shares his own uh, vision and commissioning. John on the island of Patmos, and he begins to describe how he was in the spirit on the Lord and uh, the events that caused him to uh, see these supernatural uh, events followed by the oracles, sometimes referred to as letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Here's a simplified outline. Opening, 
letter greeting, expression of praise to God, two prophecies, John's vision and calling, and the letters to the churches. So let's now focus on the opening of the book of Revelation. Openings are extremely important. I was given an introduction this evening. You got to know a little bit about me, right? I'm a, I, I have, a, I have a special skills in, in camel driving. <laughs> so you got to learn a bit about myself. Introductions in ancient works served a very uh, similar purpose to get to know who is writing to whom and to give them a sneak preview of what is to come and what kind of book it was that they are reading, designed to capture the audience's attention and ear. You found out I, I, I have special skills in leading camels. Your ears, peak, uh, uh, your ears propped up, right? You're, wow, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so ancient, let, uh, ancient openings were designed which, of course, they were read aloud to grab the audience's attention from the get-go. You don't want to put them, put them to sleep, right? You want to wake them up and you want to say, here's something very, very important. This is an important book. You should listen up and hear. Secondly, ancient openings establish the author's authority or credibility. Why should I listen to this this John person in the first place. You know, what, what kind of guy is he? Who is he? Why should I listen to him? You know, why should we listen to Arash? Where does his authority come from? Well, I'm not quite sure, but... Uh, <laughs> the opening establishes the author's credibility. Also, to signal the literary type. What kind of work is this? Is it a letter? Is it a narrative? Uh, is it a parable? What kind of work of literature are we dealing with? And also to preview the themes and topics that the document will unpack. So where do you find this in a modern book? If I want to know what's inside of a, of a modern book, something like this, how do I find what it's about? You can read the back. You can read the table of contents. I can get a synopsis of the various themes and topics. You didn't have this in an, in an ancient book, quite the same way we do in a modern book. So the opening of an ancient book provides a set of instruments with which to properly interpret and scan ahead. So by carefully listening to the opening of the book of Revelation, if we, if we go too fast through it, we miss all kinds of signals, signposts from the author telling us this is where we're going. These are the topics that I'm going to uncover. This is the kind of book this is and so forth. So we look through the telescope at the beginning of the book to see what lies ahead. But beware of looking through the lens backwards the wrong way. You never know, Brother Moss, what you might see as this uh, 
Goat? Is that a goat? A lamb? Do we have any zoologists here that can identify this? A half goat? Oh, a mountain goat. So, a modern book. Maybe you go to Barnes & Noble. What do, you, what do you see within a modern book? A jacket, a cover with a title, and a, the author, and usually there's a side, uh, uh, it's folded over, and in the sides you'll see uh, blurbs about the book, right? You look on the back, often uh, time, times there'll be endorsements about how great the book is, and, and, and usually a, a short bio about the author, all kinds of information, the publisher and, show, and so forth, and you haven't even really opened the book yet. And usually within a few pages, you'll have an entire table of contents to describe what the book is about. But ancient books were quite different. And Revelation was originally written as a scroll, uh, many, many feet long. It would have been rolled up into a scroll. How did you know what it was about? Well, if you were lucky, the book might have had a tag on the outside with the title of the book. But if you really wanted to find out what the book is about, you'd, you'd open it up and you would have pages upon pages of text in what's known as continuous script, all capital letters and columns, no paragraph divisions, no any kind of modern typographical conventions, um, no headings, pages and pages and pages of letters. How did you find out what the book was about? You, you open the scroll to the very beginning and you began, and you would read it and find out this is what the book is about. So if we move too quickly over the beginning of the book of Revelation, we will miss what the author has in store for us. Another analogy I like to use for the book of Revelation is we are coming in, we're sailors, right? We've been out on the applying the, our trade on the sea, and we're now coming in to the, to the harbor. From where we were, we come in to the, to the great city of Revelation. We first come into the uh, entranceway of the city, which signals for us what we're about to see. And then we come into the foyer, the, the point where we are given an orientation to the book itself, and that's what we are focusing in on this evening. So we begin by looking at what's known as the proem, the introduction to the book of Revelation. We are going to immediately soar to cosmic heights. This is a majestic, uh, grand, dramatic, Christ-focused scene staged in the cosmos. In a, in, a, in a few short verses, we will come back down to earth and we will walk among the churches and their issues and their problems down on the ground. But, we be, but John begins this work by soaring to the mountaintop of the, of the universe itself, the cosmos. And there, the, the, you know, the, the air is a bit thin for us mortals, but it's from that uh, height, from those heights, from that soaring perspective that he launches the book of Revelation. Uh, like the Gospel of John, the book starts, we might say, in heaven. How many, know, how many here know how the Gospel of John 
begins. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. John starts that book in a cosmic sense. The Logos. And what does the Logos do? Verse, chapter 1, verse 14, it, it comes down, it tabernacles among us. It lives and dwells among us. The book of Revelation starts in a similar way in that the revelation of Jesus Christ starts from on high and through a, a, a series of what we might call intermediaries, including an angelic being, it is then given to God's servant, his slave. Talk about from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, his slave, John. From high to low. So the opening of the book traces the divine transmission of the message to a human recipient, just like the Gospel of John uh, talks about the Logos and then says, what well, there, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, referring to John the Baptist. So it's interesting that the book of Revelation provides for us and will we'll do so throughout the book, this interaction between heaven and earth. Most human beings that live in 2019 have very little notion that there's anything beyond the world that we see with our physical, tangible eyes. But John is, is uh, clear in telling us there's a very intimate connection between earth and heaven, and that God sees everything that happens down here on earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, we will see uh, this transmission, this toggling back and forth between heaven and earth, heaven and earth. And in the very end of the book, what happens? Heaven itself, in the form of the new Jerusalem, descends from, from on high, comes down, and meets earth. And there's a, a, a union of the heavenly realm and earth. And we see that taking place as well in the very opening of the book. And so the Gospel of John begins with the beginning of a new creation. Revelation begins with the end, the new consummation. We might even say that the Gospel of John covers a different time frame than the book of Revelation. And so, ironically, both begin at new beginnings and new endings. The Gospel of John brings to a conclusion the old order of things under the law of Moses and inaugurates a new creation under Messiah Jesus. And Revelation brings to an end the end of time and brings into, uh, into reality eternity or the new beginning. So the Gospel of John opens with the, ordered, uh, the created order renewed through Christ, signaling the climax of the biblical story and ushering in the end times. So it begins what? With Jesus in a new form of creation. The Logos, which spoke the world into existence, has now appeared on earth, and his death, burial, and resurrection will mark, if you will, the middle of time and the beginning of the end as the end of time now starts. Revelation opens with the apex of human history, sovereignly superintended by Christ, 
signaling the wrap-up of the biblical story and ushering in the eternal age to come. So we go from beginning to middle end, and I, I sometimes like to compare the Gospel of John with Revelation. It is my belief that they were written by the same individual, uh, and they are narrating two uh, similar two corresponding stories, but in many ways talking about different time frames. So alternatively, we might say that Genesis signals the beginning of the divine human drama. The Gospel of John, I've got it up here as G. John, signifies the middle of time. What is the middle of time? The middle of time is the cross, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And Revelation marks the end. So we might say that in some respects, Genesis, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation cover, give you, uh, give you a synopsis of the entire biblical story from beginning to the end. All right, so let's take a little closer look at chapter 1. So it begins with and, and I love this translation by the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. By the way, there is no the in the Greek text in, is the very first word. For all you uh, linguistic, Greek, uh, linguistic geeks, Greek geeks, <laughs> it's called anarthris, anarthris. No definite article. There's no the in the Greek. It is simply revelation. Revelation of Jesus the Messiah, God gave it to him. Just a side note for you, uh, linguist, more, more for you linguistic geeks, there's a long-standing discussion of, in the Greek text, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it objective or subjective genitive? And I'm not going to bore all of you with, uh, uh, with that whole discussion. But the whole notion is this is the revelation either belonging to Jesus or revealing Jesus, and some scholars will say it's both. And God gives this revelation to Jesus, who in turn does what? He signifies it uh, through the agency or the, the mediating agency of an angelic being down to a servant, John, who then records this revelation and does what? Delivers it or, or has it delivered uh, to the seven churches. So this is an authoritative, uh, transmitted revelation that comes from on high and is brought down to our level. No wonder John is he's seeing things that are hard to describe in human language. And so he writes as best as he can and often, often will say something like, like, I saw something like you know, uh, some kind of precious stone, or I saw something that resembled. If this is a revelation from God himself who lives outside of the human realm, trying to mediate it down to our level. So we see a chain of transmission emphasizing the authority and the trustworthiness. And in fact, the very end of the book says, these words are faithful and true. I've talked to a number of people just in the last couple of weeks, and I said, I'm teaching a, 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 a seminar on the book of Revelation, and they immediately tell me, oh, I do nothing with that book. 
I don't like that book. I, I, I avoid it like the plague. I don't want anything to do with it. And yet the book itself presents it as, an, as authoritative. This book is from God himself. And what is this uh, revelation going to show us? Things which must shortly take place. Here we are in the very opening of the book, and we are told that we are going to be shown things which must shortly take place. This is a tough issue, right? This book was written 2,000 years ago. And yet the author says these things must shortly take place. That gives us, uh, we end up with a concept that this stuff is going to happen very, very soon. But I would suggest that we have to remember this is God's timetable. He is the one who is sovereign over human history. His soon may not be our soon. Amen. So we're the, the, uh, the topic, the content of the book of Revelation will be about things which must shortly take place. He gives it to his servant John, who is a human intermediary, who is going to bear witness. John is a servant, a doulos in Greek. It means a slave or a bond slave. He is God's servant, serving the church and serving God and bringing them the message. So what is uh, how is the uh, message of Revelation addressed to us? Well, it is given through a lector, a reader, who is promised a blessing. Verse, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and figure out everything that's going on, no. Figure out an advanced, uh, high-level timetable of how all these things must shortly come to pass, no, but do what? Obey and keep these sayings of the book. Amen. We are to obey the book of Revelation. So now let's take a look at the salutation. John is now addressing the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Let's take a closer look. His name is John. He writes to Seven churches. These seven churches are representative, we might say, of all churches. Various churches uh, undergoing various problems, difficult situations, facing troubles. And he wishes them fear and trepidation, terror. I am writing to you seven churches because I am trying to scare you to death. No. Watch this. Grace. Charis. Grace to you and in peace. The equivalent in Hebrew of shalom. Irene in Greek. I'm grace and peace. Starts out on an, a, a good tone, Right? He wants us to uh, be open and acclimate, acclimate our heart and thinking, right, to this message. From where does the message come? Well, we've already mentioned in verse 1 it comes from God. But look at as he lays out the sources. 
We're probably accustomed to Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace. That sounds very Pauline, right? I have to say Pauline because uh, the academic dean at Urshan College uh, likes to point out, I say Pauline, that means Paul's, right? So you have to say Pauline. He's gotten on my case about that. So Paul will typically begin a letter how? Almost every one of Paul's letters be in the salutation is grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But this one is quite different. From him who is, present tense, and who was, past tense, and who is to come. So we have wrapped up in the opening source of the letter both the past, the present, and the future. And I would argue that the book of Revelation is about all three. It looks back. It looks to the present of the, of the age of these seven churches, but it also looks ahead to the future. What in particular does it look forward to? Is the book of Revelation primarily about trying to figure out a detailed schematic of current events as they will unfold one after the other after the other. No, I would say that the key event that the book looks forward to, which is actually uh, narrated in chapter 19, is he is coming again. He's coming in the clouds. I don't care if you uh, miss or, or somehow fail to figure out all the climactic, all the events that lead up to to. This one, this one is the most important. He is coming in the clouds. He, Jesus Christ is returning. He is coming with clouds. And, uh, and John, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, and I saw heaven opened and a white horse. And Jesus descends as a warrior with a sword coming out of his mouth from heaven and defeats all the opposition. So this is the climactic event of the book that is narrated numerous times. Then he, then the book goes on to give another source that sounds very strange and very odd and may mess with your theology. Is that okay if the book of Revelation messes with your theology, Brother Moss? From the seven spirits. Now, I was taught that there was one spirit. Isn't it right? One faith, one Lord. It's in there somewhere. But we're told there's seven spirits. My theology's already starting to go haywire here. I didn't know there were seven. I thought there was only one. One God, and he has one spirit. From the seven spirits. By the way, Paul's epistles typically in his opening salutations don't mention the Spirit, simply God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, uh, John uh, includes mention of the Spirit, but he says the seven spirits. So Revelation chapter 4 verse 5 equates uh, the seven spirits, watch this, with the seven lamps that are burning in the celestial throne. So when John is permitted entry, admission into the, into the uh, divine courtroom up in the heavens, 
There are seven lamps burning up there, which are the seven spirits of God. And Revelation 5, 6 associates the seven spirits with the Lamb's seven eyes. How many churches are there? In Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches. It's as though God has an eye for each one of those churches, and his spirit can simultaneously move among all of those. By the way, the, the uh, seven, the number seven, will pay, play a crucial role in the, the topics and the theme and the structures that are unpacked in the book of Revelation. So the seven spirits of God focuses on God's all-encompassing vision and knowledge. His seven spirits are everywhere. His seven spirits know everything. These seven, uh, the uh, use of the term seven spirits highlights God's omnipresence. He is at all places at all time and is omniscience. He knows all things. The Lord sees all from the throne room in the heights of the heaven to the hearts of humans on earth. Thank God for the seven spirits of God. Amen? And from Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 5. He is described, by the way, as uh, he's given several designations here, which are very important thematic, thematically for the book itself. He is a faithful witness. He tells the truth. Jesus told the truth, even though it, it cost him his life. He, he didn't back down when uh, he was uh, um, uh, challenged by falsehoods, for example, by the Pharisees and Sadducees. He stood up and proclaimed the words that God had given him, according to the uh, Gospel of John. He's also mentioned as the firstborn from the dead. He sets a pattern. And one of the important uh, events in the book is that the dead shall rise. The dead uh, who are in the graves and those who are in the sea, uh, the earth and the sea will give up the dead and the dead will be judged by the things written in the book. He is the firstborn from the dead and is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And a very important uh, Old Testament passage along these lines is the book of Psalm, Psalms, the second Psalm, which talks about how God has set his messianic regal king on his throne. And all the nations come up against him. All the nations uh, scorn him and mock him. But God gets the last laugh. And so the book of Revelation uh, depicts the story of this slain lamb who ultimately is victorious and his, uh, 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 the atonement that is given through his blood that is uh, made possible by his blood will be the, the, the victorious force of all human history. And he will sit on the throne. It's interesting if you trace the uh, depictions of the throne room scenes John is a bit reticent to actually describe the one who sits on the throne. But by the end of, very end of the book, we find out that the lamb sits on the throne 
and his servant shall serve him. There's one sitting on the throne, none other than Jesus Christ himself. Then the book breaks out into a doxology that shall foreshadow the scenes that the worship scenes in the throne room that occur later in the book. Uh, People who find the book of Revelation uh, frightening and scary and terrifying should visit these scenes in the book. God's people uh, arrayed around the throne, uh, worshiping him, and the elders throwing their crowns before him, and the the creatures, the four uh, living creatures worshiping him. And so the book begins by getting uh, God's people in practice, right? Why do we gather together as uh, the saints of God in in an auditorium like this? We come here to worship the Lord, and we are practicing, if you will, for that day on the other side, right? The day that we cross over that river, the day that we will be in his immediate presence, And we will be worshiping him for eternity. Amen? So it foreshadows the scenes in the throne room. To him who loved us, right? To him who expressed his his divine love for us by dying on a cross. To him who washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him who made us kings and priests uh, with him. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so the book is is drawing us in, and it's saying, uh, uh, members of the seven churches, we need to keep our focus on the grandeur and the glory of the one who is sovereign over all human history, He is the one who started all things back in the beginning, and he is the only one qualified and worthy to put an exclamation point on the end of human time. Amen? His name is none other than Jesus Christ, and he reigns supreme over all human history. So let's now take a look at some of the prophetic oracles. Revelation chapter 1 Verse 7, he is coming with clouds. He is coming with clouds. Each of these prophecies about Jesus directly corresponds to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The book of Daniel is probably, uh, is easily one of the most important books to study and to become familiar with as a backdrop to understanding the book of Revelation, both in its uh, macroscopically, the big picture of Revelation, as well as many of the details of the biblical text. He is coming with the clouds, and Daniel writes about one like the Son of Man who comes in the cloud, and immediately the readers of the book of Revelation are going to pick up on these echoes from the Old Testament, which are going to enrich their study of the biblical text. Every eye will see him. Every eye uh, will look up when 
he returns, this messianic figure returns in the cloud. Also, those who pierced him will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And in Daniel's rendition, the one like the Son of Man comes in the clouds. He is given authority, glory, and power by all the nations, and people worship him, giving everlasting dominion, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And so this backdrop helps inform the readers of the book of Revelation that who Jesus is, what his identity is, what he is going to do, and how he is going to be set up as king over this eternal uh, uh, kingdom. So let me just remember here, is, uh, is it 20 after uh, that I stop? You guys remember? 20 after. All right, well, uh, I think now's a good time to move into our Q&A. And I, I think uh, Dr. Stephen Beardsley is going, has a mic out there. I'm told. That's right. Arash has run away. <laughs> All right. Anybody have any questions they'd like to ask at this point? If you just raise your hand, I'll come to you with the microphone. Desi. I was just wondering if you could elaborate just a little bit, maybe a definition of what the seven spirits of God, maybe define that a little more if that's possible. the book, and it, it is simply a way of, of expressing um, um, God's ability to reach out and to see all things to be everywhere, as I was mentioning. So um, I think if we start to delve into um, questions of uh, uh, ontology, being, and so forth, we're, we're kind of missing the boat. Um, uh, some of these later uh, post-biblical discussions, I think some of them get off track. So I, I think we have to read the number seven uh, in its um, uh, symbolic, uh, it's, it's sort of a symbolic signpost. No, I think, I think that works. I think attributes works. Um, can we, can we use the microphone be, uh, because this is being recorded? Yes, yeah, she said that one of the translations, the NLT says sevenfold spirit. Sevenfold? What, yeah, sevenfold yeah. spirit. And I wonder, as you've mentioned, what I heard you say is the orientation is less about God in the sense of 
who he is and more about God in his ability to reach into those churches. Is that an accurate yes. way to understand that? It's about him and his yeah. focus upon those seven churches. There, there is a uh, passage, uh, I think it's, I think it's in Isaiah that refers, it's talking about the Spirit of God, and it lists different attributes. This goes back to what you, your comment, uh, Brother Beardsley, different attributes of God's Spirit. Uh, I don't think any, uh, any other New Testament writer uses the designation seven spirits. So I think we have to look at how this, this term functions within the book of Revelation in particular, as well as drawing from some of the Old Testament antecedents of its meaning. Yeah, it's not talking about, you know, almost like a thing one and a thing two. Well, God has his, his spirit number one and his spirit number two as though they're distinct beings or entities. It's talking about uh, what God does through the agency of his spirit. Remember, be easy on me. <laughs> Kids ask some of the toughest questions. Um, I don't really understand what you mean by when you said every eye will see him. Like, like how is everyone in like the world gonna see um, God when he comes descends from heaven? Yeah, that is a great uh, that is a great question. Um, Arash. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that, uh, you know, if you're asking a physics question, um, you know, how can people, let's see, if he's going to appear in the clouds on the other side of the earth, how, how, you know, we going, how are we going to see him? I, I, ha I have honestly have no idea how that works in terms of the, of the physics and the angles and all that. All I know is everyone is going to be able to see his return. It's going to be a universal uh, event. Hmm? It will be evident. Thank you. Yeah. I can't scientifically explain it, but I know it's going to happen. But good question. If, if you become a physicist someday, maybe you can figure it out. Questions? He could use some. <laughs> I excise that from the tape. <laughs> I may be getting ahead of us uh, a little bit, uh, but here in this, um, in, within the next couple of verses, John identifies himself as brother and companion in tribulation, and I. It, it struck me that it seems odd because in his epistles he refers he's talking about you know, in the gospel that he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved and um, he ad addresses uh, even in the his his epistles a real focus on love right when he ta talks about the the church as um, refers to himself as the elder but also uh, what's the um, I, I've forgotten the the term. Even in the third one, in the third epistle, let me, if I could find it real quick here. Um, the elect lady, that's what I was talking about. And, and her epistle. children whom I love in the truth. And then in, in the third one about 
well, well-beloved Gaius. There really seems to be a, a constant repetition by John about love, and yet here in his address, he says, brother and companion. Do you have a, a comment or an insight on that shift? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that I see it as much of, of a shift. In okay. fact, he talks about he who loved us. Um, I mean, I think in both instances, John is sharing, uh, uh, the Greek word is kinonia or koinonia, a camaraderie, a partnership with the people in the, in the various churches. He use, in uh, the epistles of John, he uses familial language, family language, uh, little children and fathers and, and so forth. Here he's, he's calling them brothers, so it's still this familial language, and he is suffering, uh, probably incarcer- incarcerated under an imperial sentence or edict on the island of Patmos, and his, his church families in Asia Minor, across uh, that part of the Aegean Sea, there on the shore, on the on the on the mainland, they're suffering. So I don't I don't know as I necessarily see it as uh, whatever disjunctive or um, um, he he's their fellow servant. He's on the same side. They're they're going through trials over there, which we'll we'll learn more about when we get into the, the letters to the seven churches. He's going through trials. So. Um, so, so, are you trying to get at he, more of an authority figure in the epistles? And it seemed in the epistles there's more of a vertical relationship, and then gotcha. he references it seems more of a horizontal relationship yeah. in his uh, introducing himself. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with a situation that he's that he's dealing with. Um, some would say again. These are two different individuals. John was a common name. One is a prophet and seer. The other one is the apostle, or the, some would even say the el, you know the elders distinct uh, from the apostle. But I think the circumstances demand a uh, different kind of language. Um, to um, you know, in the epistles, he's dealing with uh, uh, f- uh, these false uh, prophets and uh, teachers who are who are disrupting the church and creating havoc. He's stepping up as his, as his role as a, as a bishop, as an elder. Revelation, he's taking on a different function. Last question before break. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, looking at the list of churches, I was wondering why those at Colossus or Corinth was not included. I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that. Which were the two churches that weren't included? Those at Corinth and Coloss. Coloss. You you got to get past the Jamaican accent we got here. Corinth and Coloss. Why are those two churches, do you think, not included in the seven? Why the formation of those seven? (laughs) Sure. Well, well, for one thing, Corinth wasn't located in Asia Minor. It wouldn't have been under John's jurisdiction. It was in, uh, yeah, it was uh, in the the dismiss. It was in Achaia, right? And so, um, but that is a great question. Why those seven, no more, no less? Um, there were many other churches that were kind of part of that circle. Um, I, I think the Spirit simply guided John to address seven. Seven. <laughs> it's hard to do seven with a microphone. Seven. 
And I think that they were representing all the churches. I think this was meant to be copied, shared, read among many, many other churches that aren't specifically mentioned in the book. So again, seven is significant. Seven churches, uh, seven spirits, and many other uh, sevens we'll encounter in the book. Let's take our intermission, and we will come back at, I'm going to keep us on schedule, at 8.40. So quickly, you know from last week, there are refreshments in the lobby as well as here on either side. Nick, you might need to cut the countdown down a little bit for us, maybe 15 minutes. Use the bathroom ahead of time. <laughs>